The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name's Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside a senior editor at Future Sox, also a part of SoxMachine.com. Now I'm sure you've heard by now, but we appreciate everybody's support in our transition from going independent to now partnering with SoxMachine.com. Jim Margulis, Josh Nelson, among others who put out the fantastic product. Go to SoxMachine.com forward slash Future Sox for all of our stuff. I'm at Rankin906 on Twitter. James is at JamesFox917. We have a special guest today on the podcast. We'll introduce him in just a hot second. Before we do that, I'd like to point you towards our Patreon page, Patreon.com forward slash SoxMachine. You could sign up there. This podcast, by the way, ad free on patreon so if that doesn't tickle your fancy check out any of the other offers that we have available within the patreon so we really do appreciate it it helps us grow and continue to do the stuff that we're doing now every tuesday you can listen to the future socks podcast and it's been it's been awesome uh, i really enjoy doing it especially with uh, james here as our partner i mentioned james because he was able to land a special guest today and that's Phil Selig of CubaDugout.com. You can follow Phil at CubaDugout on Twitter. Phil, it's a pleasure, first and foremost, to have you on the podcast because, well, obviously the White Sox dominate the international signing market and especially within the Cuban range. And, well, you specialize in the Cuban market. So not only just the international class, but specifically, we're going to talk to you a lot about the Cuban players within the White Sox organization, big league and minor leagues. But first, Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Always love, uh, always love discussing it. And uh, as you mentioned, kind of uh, Chicago is at the epicenter of all of it. So um, great to, great to see Cubans having an impact in the, in the Windy City. So Phil, you're the founder of CubaDugout.com. You do everything. But what's interesting about it is you go out of your way to gather video and travel to Cuba in person. And you told us 
that you traveled early this year in January and February, but you're based out of Canada. What motivated you to follow this niche? And what are the, some of the challenges that you face considering you're based in Canada and you're following all these Cuban talents? And obviously Major League Baseball is littered across the United States, but I mean, this is like a global thing that you're taking on. What are some of the challenges that you're facing covering this specific niche? Yeah, so first things, I mean, I'm, I'm a lifelong uh, Major League Baseball fan and, and, and still am to this day. So uh, Cuban baseball has definitely become a great supplement to uh, to that fandom. And so, you know, in Canada, we have some inherent advantages. Um, it's much easier for us to uh, to travel to Cuba. Um, and, and so I guess my journey started, uh, about a decade ago and, and a good friend of mine that I actually played baseball with had been trying to get me to, uh, to come along. He'd been going since the mid 1990s and, and, you know, kind of stumbled onto baseball there. And, you know, finally my vacation plan sort of fell into place where, where it worked out. And I always like to say, um, the first time that I went there and went to, uh, to a game in Cienfuegos, Cuba, I was both overwhelmed and, and, and underwhelmed. So overwhelmed in the scale, um, you know, the stadiums uh, themselves in terms of the, the scale uh, and, and the buzz and everything feel like you could be at a, a you know, a triple A game, a major league game, uh, underwhelmed in terms of some of the, uh, the amenities, but uh, in many ways it's, it's uh, like being in a, uh, in a time machine. So, so it's very cool that way. And, and kind of what tipped off everything for me uh, in chatting with some locals uh, before heading to the game uh, was the amount of knowledge that they had of what was going on in, in, the, in the broader baseball sphere, despite how you know tough it was, especially at that point for, uh, for information to get into Cuba, but uh, was told to be uh, on the lookout one player who had just left in, in Yasiel Pui and one player that I'd be seeing that night in, in, a, in a name that's very familiar to, I think, everybody listening in Jose Abreu. What did you know, I guess, at the time when like Jose, like, I mean, this is like after that, obviously, when Jose Abreu came here and then, you know, the whole thing about eating the passport like that, that was pretty prevalent here. So, you know, whatever you remember about that, but then also, you know, how important was that signing for the White Sox essentially like leading them to, you know, I think many of these other signings that they were able to to do successively like after him. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what, you look at it, the, the pivot point is, is probably the 2006, the World Baseball Classic. And um, the White Sox are actually still on the vanguard of some of that because I think the, the first player that really came out of that group uh, that took that chance and, and left was Alexei Ramirez. And so whether or not that opened up the eyes to, uh, to players as to the fact that, A, they could compete at that level, but also that, um, you know, the, the risk was, was becoming worth it. Um, there's a little bit of chicken and egg in there. Uh, I mean, obviously, we saw players defector in the 1990s, but it was largely, largely pitchers, and, and I don't want to discredit the impact that they had, but we didn't really see any superstars during that point. And to that point, paying for, for the National Series and playing in Cuba was still paramount. So, you know, but the, the World Baseball Classic and, and that access to um, two agents to start getting into more guys' ears, but also some, some shady characters. And I mean, that's the underbelly of, of all of it, that um, at least for a period, uh, it, it seems most of that has been ameliorated. But at least for a period, a lot of these players were uh, risking, you know, their health, uh, risking not being being able to see their family again. And as, as you mentioned in the Abreu um, story, which has been documented through through court filings, that uh, basically being extorted to get uh, to get on their way out. So 
that that being said, Abreu on the on the island at that point was um, was larger than life in in uh, both in stature. He stood out literally, figuratively, and his performances both for uh, for Cienfuegos and for the uh, and for the national team. So I think it was more just that combination that as he kind of came of age there, um, the erosion, seeing you know uh, player after player that he kind of either uh, may have played with both uh, for the national uh, in, in the national series and for the national team, seeing that they were getting out and and seeing the contracts that they were signing and and then just kind of uh, enough. Uh, you know, enough enough voices around making it to the point that, you know, uh, this is something to consider. Phil, you mentioned Alexei Ramirez, and you, James and I talked to Maria Torres of The Athletic, specifically uh, focusing on the Dominican Republic and though, like how difficult it is for players to really be on their own, I guess, because when they compete, obviously scouts are essentially claiming these types of players at 14, 15 years old, and they're working behind you know, the backs of the players and trying to make deals with agents or to sell their services. I mean, you talk about the shadiness going on. I mean, that happens across the international market, specifically within the Dominican Republic. And I'm just wondering how much of that is actually going on within Cuba as well, how different it's been since you mentioned the Alexei Ramirez trek to the United States. Yeah, we've se- we've seen some big changes, and, and uh, some of it was driven by um, policy, by spending limits, uh, some of it just ba- based on reality of, of the amount of talent. So, you know, uh, Luis uh, Rober uh, is probably the last true big bonus player before they change the rules and also probably one of the last players that we're going to see that even – um, being as young as he was, had extensive ser- uh, experience in the national series uh, when it was closer to its its apex. What we're seeing right now is a mix between um, younger players that basically it's very similar and to the Dominican and probably are being first discovered in the Dominican. So kids that are getting out of 14, 15, 16, and, um, you know, that, that, that pipeline similar to, uh, as mentioned to the Dominican or, or, uh, Venezuela actually has, uh, has, has some similar, similar paths as well. And then what we do have currently and kind of, uh, we, we saw, you know, last September, uh, a record number of players leave, uh, during a U23 tournament in, uh, in Mexico. And, and one of those players we'll discuss later that just recently signed with the, uh, with the White Sox. So a little bit more mature that, that those kids that are between 19 and 23, they're, they're the guys that are falling under more of this conventional, uh, international signing period. But even then with the sheer amount of talent that's out there, the, the pressure has been downwards on, on the, uh, on the signing bonuses. But I think, you know, for a longer term, what we're going to see, unless there's, there's major intervention or, you know, either the advent of an international draft, which has been proposed or the revival in some form of the, uh, the deal from 2018, I think what we're probably going to see is more of the kids just getting out younger and younger and training in the Dominican. And, you know, I don't want to say they're going to lose their Cuban identity, but uh, there's some level within that that they'll almost feel more like a Dominican prospect than a Cuban prospect. Phil, I know you've been over there a bunch of times. How is like the fandom for, I guess, like everyday Cubans that maybe are interested in baseball. Like the White Sox have a storied history with Cuban players, obviously dating all the way back to Minnie Mignoso. Um, and then, you know, there was a bunch throughout the two, we mentioned Alexi Ramirez and there's Diane Viciedo and Jose Contreras, Orlando, you know, the list is endless. And, you know, it's really taken off though after Jose Abreu, like we've talked about. So how are the White Sox seen in Cuba? Like, do baseball fans on the island recognize the White Sox as like a major brand in Major League Baseball? 
So I, I don't know if there's as much allegiance to MLB teams, and it is definitely hard for uh, for Cubans to to get that coverage. They do find a way. So in individual conversations, you know, it, when I talk to people, they're familiar with all of the players and and where they are. Um, you know, the reality is they're most aren't going to be able to follow that day today, um, and so to tie that into what their baseball fandom looks like. It's, it's still passionate and, and it is tougher for them. I mean, it's the, the past two years have been tough the world over, but especially for, for, for Cuba where, you know, effectively most of that, that tourist dollar, which they rely on heavily has, has been cut off, uh, you know, without being flippant, you know, scarcity is always a thing, but it's been an even bigger thing down to, I, I guess maybe in this anecdote. So, so they did manage to, uh, to play, the 60th Cuban National Series, which started a little bit later in, um, I think, in September of, of 2020 and ran until April of 2021. But they were playing in front of empty stadiums due to electrical concerns, energy concerns, was playing all day games. And as much as they do have national broadcasts, uh, they weren't able to show all of the games. So, you know, it was tough for, for a lot of fans um, to uh, to really engage with what their team was doing. So, you know, they've made strides in other ways. So the, the Cuban National Series, the 61st Series, is going on right now. Their, their playoffs are about to begin, so fans were welcome back, and, and uh, they did come back largely in droves. Uh, they're trying to do more to get those television broadcasts out. Uh, again, they're they're missing out on some of the key bro- uh, primetime broadcasts, but some some of the stadiums did have their their lights repaired and you know do have enough energy for that. So uh, the Cuban baseball fan increasingly is just like uh, like any other uh, fan in, in in Canada or or in the United States. Whereas you have to give them a reason to care about the team, but when you do, they they, they do come out and it's uh, it's a vibrant experience. It's uh, you know it's electric. They they have the um, they basically have live bands which you know you don't want to necessarily sit in the row in front of them and you might not want to spend nine innings uh, within earshot of that but luckily you know as a photographer when I'm there I have a tendency to move around the stadium anyway but it's uh, it, it's electric but there is there is definitely a breaking point for for the fans if they feel that the product on the field is not uh, is not as good as they'd like so you know the White Sox did not sign Yoan Moncada when he when he came over the first time he signed with Boston for a big bonus. You know you recently did a great story on your website and it you know I retweeted it. Just you know the White Sox acquired him in the Chris Sale trade and he was already in Boston at that time. But you know his path out of Cuba is absolutely fascinating and we heard some of that stuff when the White Sox got him, like some of the, some of the David Hastings stuff. And it was like a little bit weird. Can you give the listeners some details on that? You don't have to go through the whole thing, but I guess like maybe Cliff Notes version on the path was super interesting and how, how tough it was for Mankata to get here and what he had to go through to do so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very unique. And uh, I tried to make a point of making certain that everything uh, that I that I touch on in the video is what's on the public record, because uh, it seems like a few of the people involved uh, are a little bit litigious. Uh, and so that's that's a through line through through all of it. Um, you know, w- what we do know is that, um, in 2013, kind of, like I said, at the, at the same time when a lot of the defections were happening, uh, Cuba always, uh, always plays in, in, in some lesser known tournaments in Holland. And one was the, uh, was the, the world port tournament. And so Moncada, uh, joined, joined the squad, but at that point is, you know, 19 years old, had, been, had just spent his first season or, or a little bit of time in the national series and, and really wasn't. 
uh, wasn't a huge name. And, you know, the, the prospect, uh, prospecting in, in, in Cuba at that point wasn't as big a thing. So as is regaled through, through some, some established writings, uh, the late Peter Bjarkman uh, wrote extensively and he was there in person and, and an acquaintance of mine who, who he references in that, uh, a Brit friend, uh, Gavin Owen, uh, were there, have attested that during this tournament, there, there were a couple, uh, a couple young ladies that, that uh, stuck out like a, like a sore thumb. And, um, you know, one of them proved to be Nicole Banks, who, you know, there's debate. You can you can make up your own mind. And if you watch the piece, whether or not she was an agent, if she had aspirations of being an agent. But regardless, uh, she had her eyes on on basically coming home with a a Cuban baseball player. And so that that baseball player proved to be Yoan Moncada. And so from there, um, they got married and, and and had a son. And it looks as if that Moncada found a legal way out, which uh, I didn't touch on it in the video, but uh, for anybody who's familiar with the Hideo Nomo story, Hideo Nomo actually found a, a loophole when he was playing in Japan because um, he was in a contract dispute with uh, with uh, was the Oryx Buffaloes or, or whatever they were known as at that time, and actually legally retired from the Japanese series, moved to the United States, and then... Um, decided to unretire and sign with the Dodgers. So that's basically what uh, Moncada, uh, it seems to be steered by, um, by banks and then possibly the benefactor in the background, uh, Hastings, again, who through court filings, there's, there's different uh, chatter on that. But, but my best instinct is that Hastings either operated as uh, the benefactor and agent with, uh, with banks providing a lot of guidance as well. But basically, uh, convinced the Cuban National Series or the Cuban Federation that he was retired. He had enough of baseball, and then uh, found his way out of the island from that, and and uh, through Ecuador and, and Guatemala, and then all of a sudden in the states decided, oh no, I want to play baseball again. And then the Red Sox gave him thirty one point five million dollars. Well, and then since the White Sox traded for him, you know he was a big bonus guy. So he gets here, you know the White Sox promote him. He, you know he's part of their core, or whatever. Then he signs like another extension. So he's on like a whatever, like a five-year contract with the White Sox, like with an option. And he was one of these guys who, you know, a lot of people didn't really think the White Sox were going to be able to lock up to a deal like that, which is typical for them, you know, and he kind of took the money. I mean, it was a good deal. wasn't a great deal, but, you know, I think he's guaranteed $90 million or so. That was after he had switched agents here. So that that part uh, was interesting too, I thought. Yeah, and, and so that's why there there is some, uh, like I said, there is litigation going on because there's there's uh, discrepancies in the in the dollars or the percentages that were were supposed to go to Hastings banks uh, in divorce filings. Kind of you know may have precluded herself uh, from any earnings that, uh, that that would be attributed to an agent and, and can't claim to be his agent. Uh, and then of course, as you mentioned, he was a big, uh, a big component or the main piece in coming over. And, and then the White Sox, um, you know, at, at roughly at the time that, that the White Sox decided to, uh, to change in some ways the way that they do business, you know, obviously the, uh, the, the Jimenez extension, uh, early, uh, you know, Luis Rover received the biggest, um, biggest major league baseball extension without ever having a, a major league at bat ever. And uh, Moncada was the, the beneficiary uh, of that as well, where they decided to go all in on their, uh, on their young Latin talent, which, you know, is, uh, is, is a gamble, but um, you know, if, uh, if they can get on the track, even this year, I think uh, very quickly will look like smart investments. Phil Selig of CubaDugout.com. Follow him on Twitter at CubaDugout. One more question before we take a break. You mentioned Luis Robert. Now, 
to my recollection, it was the Cardinals who were in on him heavily, and the White Sox ended up winning the bid. What was that process like? What do you know about the uh, the Luis Robert acquisition and pursuit? Yeah, no, uh, he, toolsy uh, toolsy product coming out of um, you know coming out of Cuba, and uh, even a 17 year old right away, prodigious, moved in was part of a uh, a, a mini dynasty in uh, you know in an outfield. He's in left field, and um, and Adolis Garcia currently with the Texas Rangers is in in right field. And if uh, Rusny Castillo hadn't affected, they could have had uh, you know a big time outfield that way. My understanding is fundamentally what that deal came down to and why the White Sox got him over the Cardinals was the willingness to to pay the the penalty. So similar to the Moncada dollars, I think uh, I think Rober. I'm sorry, there's always uh, there's always discussion over how to say the last name Robert Rober. I, I go back and forth on it, but uh, received I think twenty six uh, twenty six million in signing bonus, but then the uh, the White Sox had to pay a uh, you know a, a dollar for dollar tax on that. So how deep the the Cardinals would have had to gone into that penalty, or how deep they were willing to go into the penalty, is what I believe swayed that. So the the White Sox looked at and were willing to pay a hundred percent tax on on uh, on that player, and that's why they got. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Really good stuff from Phil. We're going to take our first break. When we come back, we have minor league players to go over there's a number of talented prospects that of course we have to get phil's perspective on as well as a new international prospect that the white Sox are in on and we'll get all the details next don't go anywhere this is the future Sox podcast if you are a patreon member you stay right here without any ads so consider that if you're not already we're going to take a break come back with phil Phil Selig, kind enough to join us here on the Future Sox podcast. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit to the minor league side of the operation and focus on what the White Sox have awaiting in the wings, beginning with Yolbert Sanchez. Here's where I want to start, Phil. Yolbert is, you know, he's taken us by storm over the last year plus because he's hitting very well and he's performing well at AAA now. We think he's a big league player, but I'm curious what your thoughts were on Yolbert when the White Sox got him in the international signing draft. What's changed? What were some of the concerns and has he squashed those concerns? So I, I just missed out on seeing him in Havana in, uh, in 2016, but that's not necessarily his fault. 
at, at that point, there was a lot of young talent that was uh, that was called up to Industrialis, the, the team in Havana, the, basically the Yankees of, of Cuban baseball. And uh, for instance, during my travels, I, I also uh, just missed out, um, and, and more just because they were struggling to get playing time due to uh, to roster depth on uh, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. So what I do take away from that is that uh, Industrialis, especially again, when, when that roster was very strong, saw something in the kid to at least carry him. And, and he did get uh, a decent amount of playing time for, for a kid that young. So, you know, for, for him to leave was a little bit of a, a surprise and kind of maybe a harbinger of, um, of that current state that where we're in. Uh, of these, uh, uh, you know, a lot of these kids that um, if you if you blinked, you missed them in the national series, but are, are coming over and, and going through that path. Probably, you know, at, at the high end of that, the best example that that kind of fits into that cohort would be a Jordan Alvarez for the uh, for the Astros. So, you know, he uh, so Yolbert signs is perceived as a glove first uh, shortstop. And, and as far as I know, the, the glove has been solid, although more from an organizational depth uh, perspective, it looks like they're, they're trying him out a little bit more at second and third in the, uh, in the minors now all the way up to, uh, up to Charlotte. But what does look has surprised has been the bat, which has been a, you know, solid, uh, solid 300 plus hitter in the minors, not a lot of power, but uh, also augmented with, uh, with a good eye and, and uh, pretty solid solid on base skills. And, and so not a name that, uh, honestly, I, I, I've discussed as much. He's flown under the radar a little bit, but actually could be the next Cuban that, that uh, is playing for, for the White Sox, and that could be sooner than later. So two more names that obviously get lumped together. A couple of outfielders, Yowelki Cespedes and uh, Oscar Colas. White Sox landed both of them. Obviously, you've, you know, you've talked about kind of the new bonus rules. You know, they had to do one last year and one this year because teams are limited with, with who they could sign. Um, who, who do you like better out of those guys? And then had you seen either of them before? Yeah. So very familiar with, uh, with Cespedes have seen him up, uh, up close and personal and, and, uh, occasionally, um, do have some interaction with him and going back as, as far as, uh, 2017 Colos more from afar and, and more just from compiling uh, a lot of the, uh, the video that that's out there, you know, the, as you say, they, they are kind of bulked to, uh, together. Um, and, and in the regard, I can see where they're similar in another way. They're very, very different. Uh, I've increasingly have thought about, uh, this and the potential path for them that, you know, there is, there is a lot of buzz or a lot of hope that both one, you know, one or both will be stars. I look at more, uh, paths if that doesn't happen or, you know, ways that if, um, if one projection doesn't work, you know, how, how can they hit a roster and stick? So to that end, I think that, uh, Colos, you know, if his bat takes off, as more of a slugger, I think is um, you know could have that star potential, but at the very least, you know playing a, a corner spot not hurting you. He's not a fantastic athlete uh, that way. I don't believe you know. I know that they're, they're trying him out in center field, and you have to figure out that if that's the case. But could be you know a corner bat first uh, first base option. As time has gone on, I look at, I see both in his swing mechanic and, and potentially in uh, in what he does is, is sort of a, a Cliff Floyd type of player. Whereas Yoaki Cespedes, um, you know, has probably has more tools, but not necessarily any that jump out at you as much as that big left-handed bat from Colos. That being said, I, I could see a path again that if, if Cespedes doesn't take off as a star, 
you know, could has probably enough skills that he can, you know, play all three outfield positions and, you know, play center field regularly. And, and, you know, maybe if, if, again, if he doesn't make it as a star, could, could stick on a roster as a fourth outfielder being a little bit more versatile that way. So, you know, we've seen, uh, we've seen some good stuff out of, out of both of them so far. Colos, you know, at, at advanced a is doing everything that, that you hope he will and is going to force a promotion. Cespedes is a little bit slower, but you know, if you dig into his numbers, they're, they're good. Uh, you want to see a little bit more, you want to see a little bit more patience, but, um, you know, I think that, uh, both of them could be at least pushing for, could be pushing for a spot in, in spring training next year. Or, you know, it does give the, the White Sox who are in win now mode some some tools to shop around if they choose to go that way. You know, this might put you on the spot a little bit. and I'm going to ask you to speculate. We, we've kind of talked about this, but once the bonus pool structure kind of changed, like the White Sox as a large market club usually have between five and six million dollars to spend per season. So, you know, these guys are getting in the two to three million dollar range to sign. And that's just as a bonus. And then they go into the minor league system, you know, just like a minor league player. We saw Luis Robert and Yohan Moncada get these huge bonuses. And I don't think these two players are that caliber. But what do you think? Like under the old system, what is an Oscar Colas getting on the market? Yeah, no, no, that that's that's a good question, and uh, it is tough because, as I said, there's uh, there's been a big change. I mean, you've got Colos and and Cespedes are closer, I guess, in terms of that development path to, and I'll throw out, you know, on Abreu, uh, a, a Yuli Gurriel, but they're 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 not fair either. So you know, those those were fully formed, you know, uh, mature products that came over, and it was just a matter of what do we think of the Cuban league, uh, you know, and the adjustment to major league baseball, not as much as what do we think of this player? So, you know, under, under these rules, I mean, that, that, uh, that, that suppression is big, you know, would, would teams have gone 10 million on, on that type of player? If we had the old rules, I think would, uh, you know, it's probably fair. Yeah. So I, I agree. I don't think, um, and I hope, I hope they both prove me wrong. I don't think they're in that Abreu. I don't think they're in that uh, Yuli Gurriel. I don't think they're in that, that that Robert category. But that is no slight for the sake of those are two of the greatest players ever on the island uh, with, with Robert who could end up having the greatest career of any Cuban ever. Phil, I want to take you to Norge Vera. And this has been a process for the White Sox dating back to when they acquired him. He had the visa issue, so... The White Sox lost a year development in 2020, didn't get him over stateside because he didn't establish residency when he signed the contract to join the White Sox. And in 2020, we all know what was going on in that season, all the difficulties stateside in the first place. But then you, you get to 2021, they gradually pitched him in the Dominican Summer League. He dominated, but you know only 20 innings or so. So nothing too much to hang your head on, except the fact that we saw velocity and we saw a second pitch that was very sharp. Now we get to 2022, at least us here at Future Sox, we're expecting him to come stateside, hopefully get into a regular rotation and maybe pitch at a full season affiliate, maybe Winston-Salem because he's turning 22 in June. However, early in the spring, he has the lad injury and we have still yet to see Norhe Vera pitch in a professional game stateside for a minor league affiliate with the White Sox. What is your opinion of Norhe Vera at this point, considering all that I just said? And what are your expectations for him moving forward? 
So the the pitching has definitely lagged behind the hitting in the past few years. So which is uh, again, I mean, we're going back twenty five years for for the purposes of of this, where the original uh, the original impact players coming over from Cuba were all pitchers, and outside of you know perhaps Aroldis Chapman, there are some young arms. Uh, and, and sorry, uh, Aroldis Chapman and. Um, Rizel Iglesias um, for for the Angels. Otherwise, there's there's a bit of a gap in there, and whether or not that's just Cuba lagging behind in in pitching pedagogy, you know. Um, although the thing about that is that, as you mentioned, Vera uh, looks to be that rare Cuban pitching prospect, at least right now, that's doing what baseball in America is doing. Like you said, two pitches. Uh, 95 plus with you know with wipeout uh, slider capability on on the on the second half. Uh, Vera has all the tools. Uh, everything down from you know second generation. His father was a legendary pitcher in in Cuba. Uh, a little bit of experience in the National Series. Although the other thing that that we are seeing there's a lot of rust. Um, you know especially he left uh, not soon after. Um, I, I, I did have the chance to see him pitch some bullpens in 2019, but not, not any game action when they were touring in Canada. So he left, uh, not soon after, after that, but effectively, as you mentioned with all of the other, um, you know, issues and whatnot is, is bordering on, you know, two and a half years of, of real key development time being wiped out. But everything I've read about him, like you say, in, in the uh, Dominican Summer League there, you don't want to get too hyped up on that, but you couldn't ask for him to do more than what he did there. Uh, but with the caveat that, you know, he is three years older than, than the kids there. So showed some good signs. This year, what, what you want to see out of him, as you mentioned, is, is get back healthy, get pitching in, you know, uh, in, in A-ball, double-A, and, and see what he has there and just stay healthy for a year and uh, then then kind of reevaluate next year with an idea, though, that, uh, you know, a lot of times with, with these guys, they're they're not quite mature, but they're definitely more mature than, than the prospects coming out of other countries, and it can get late real quick. One of the things that we just saw, the, you know, the White Sox are signing another Cuban prospect. So, you know, just to offer some background here, the, the White Sox signed Oscar Colas in this signing class, as well as a host of other players. They had an agreement with a Dominican right-handed pitcher named uh, Angel Cruz. There were some issues with the physical, and that deal was nixed, essentially, and the White Sox still had around $800,000 to play with in this year's market. Well, this week, it was reported that the White Sox would be signing Lloyd L. Chappelle Jr. You know, you wrote about him and some of the others that left that team down in Mexico. What are the Sox getting in, in Chappelle? And, you know, are the other, some of those other guys, are those guys looking for deals currently as well? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why this is a very, very strange uh, signing period. Um, I won't uh, I won't call it two jammed into one, but based on the timings, maybe it's one and a half jammed in, into one. And so I, I view it uh, through some of that lens that, you know, as mentioned, there's there's a there's more talent available right now than there typically would be. Uh, twofold, you know, again, because of the whole COVID change and the dates around, but also with the, the, you know, the high profile, the number of players that, that kind of made themselves available, there were more than, than usual at this point. And so, um, you know, for, for, for a Chappelle who, um, you know, it's not, not probably, you know, we've already touched on a level of maybe those strata um, of, of Cuban prospect. 
Now, same thing for, for him. He's second-generation star, has had success, was the rookie of the year a couple of years ago, has some nice tools. And, and basically, I think where the market has gone, the White Sox, with their history and with their culture, look and say $500,000 for a flyer on a kid who was the rookie of the year in the Cuban National Series – why not? And so uh, it strikes me as probably one of those deals that fell into their lap, um, you know, for, for, for some depth here, good, um, you know, solid contact, left-handed bat. I won't call him fast, but he's quick in the outfield. He's, uh, he's solid. And, and, you know, you get him into a development program, you'll, you'll see what you can have, what, what you have there. Um, I want to be careful with this comp because it's more based on kind of his stature and, and swing approach than, than necessarily some of those other ancillary skills. But uh, thinking about it, Dave's looking at seeing a lot of Juan Pierre in him and, you know, so could you develop him into that type of player? But just want to be careful. He doesn't necessarily have that speed, but basically could you turn him into that, 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 that high contact kind of uh, table setter? Um, you know, for, for $500,000. And again, with the, uh, with the sheer number of, of Cubans or, or phrase this way, uh, if the White Sox, if anybody knows how to develop that type of player, it's the White Sox. Great insight, Phil. As we let you go, I got one more for you. I think James has another. Go to cubadugout.com if you're enjoying this conversation and, and follow along what Phil is, is working on uh, throughout his life because, you know, this is unique, one of a kind insight. We have him here on the Future Sox podcast. We're huge fans of Brian Ramos. Are you? And what do you know about him? Uh, what are some of your expectations moving forward? Is is this going to be a White Sox for multiple years at the big league level? Well, so now, yeah, there there's a player that um, kind of flies under the radar, and and for you know, partial for for good reason. I mean, like I said, when he signed, uh, he signed younger than than a lot of previous uh, Cuban talents had, and so what you're going to see with him is this is going to be a kid that's going to have developed more in the States than in, in, in Cuba. I always, uh, I always wonder about that is if there's a nature versus nurture or to, to some extent, again, with all of the, the changes, if the players that we saw come over at first and, and again, you know, like the Abreu's and, and, and of the like that basically we're playing, at close to a professional level for close to 10 years for no money, the money didn't really change them. And that's why you saw the skills kind of transcend and come over. So these younger players though, you know, same thing. They're maybe not getting as huge a bonus, but they're developing in this system. So, you know, it, it's, are they going to put into the work? Are they going to make the adjustments to, to life uh, in, in, in this different country? But do they, you know, when you look at the age that they are and how they're, you know, kind of becoming men at that point, does it, are they going to remember much of what happened in Cuba? So uh, kind of a long winded say way to say that with Ramos, the, the really the, the report card for him is what we see in the here and the now. And for uh, you know, for a kid that's, um, I mean, he is 20 now, so, but has been in the system for a few years showing, showing, uh, some improvements. I mean, uh, just looking at some of his numbers right now, I know he's with, with Winston Salem showing some good, uh, some, some good, uh, some good things there. Um, I saw, I actually saw James, uh, post the other day of something that, um, might be more interesting in terms of the potential upcoming 40 man, uh, crunch with the, um, you know, with the, with the rule five draft, um, 
just looking at where the White Sox are currently, and again, in the, in, in that win now and some of the uh, some of that pipeline, I wonder if he's the type of player that they might end up losing in, in the Rule Five draft, just because you know is is starting to turn that corner, but won't necessarily push for for a major league spot, or, or the White Sox don't really have that room for him. So, um, you know, Sky's. Actually, I won't, I won't say that. I won't say this guy's the limit. I think um, you know he looks like a, a good young prospect, but again, uh, from a different cut, from a little bit of a different breed, just based on how that signing uh, world has changed than a lot of the Cuban players of the past. Phil, thanks for the time. Couple things, you know, I wanted to ask before we let you go. You know, you kind of talked about what Cuban baseball is currently like, and kind of like the shift that you think is coming, where a lot of the younger guys may end up, you know, in the Dominican and stuff along those lines. But we heard a couple of years back that there was, you know, there was going to be an agreement between the United States and Cuba, you know, on the federal level. And, you know, I took it as like some sort of posting system that would be similar to Asia. And then that was obviously like nixed um, by, you know, who was in charge of our government at the time. So what, what do you, can you explain, I guess, what happened there, what it would have looked like? And then, I guess just like the issues that that's caused for like some of the players that might've been banking on, you know, being able to come over there and just like come play baseball here. Yeah. I mean, it should have surprised us that uh, the politics got involved when that's all it's been for, for 60 years. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to point fingers at either side just to say that, you know, um, that's very complex. The U S has, has, has a hand in it. Cuba has a hand in it, but basically if we look at what the proposed structure was very similar to Japan, Basically, players could have been posted when they reach the age of 25, having six years of service in uh, in in the Cuban National Series. So that so that was struck down for um, over over some legalities, which you know, should we really be that surprised? I look at it through a little bit of a different window these days. That um, and and I don't ever want to be accused as an apologist. That's not that's not what this is, but. If positive, positive for for me is that at least the Cuban uh, Federation, Baseball Federation, has softened their stance, and they seem to be the ones that are pushing more for an agreement to happen. Now, is that going to happen for the sake that Major League Baseball seems to have their cake and eat it too these days? They're getting the players younger and younger. Um, they're they're paying them less and less. And so, you know, there is a level where, of course, they're going to focus basically on their enterprise. But, you know, as much as Cuba's producing, you know, maybe more talent than it ever has, as much as it's not, maybe it's not as much superstar talent, but overall, the, the amount of Cuban baseball talent is immense. But if you don't, you know, if you don't cultivate that soil, it's eventually it's going to stop uh, yielding a crop. You know, a lot of that falls at the feet of the Cuban government. Make no mistake about it. But at the same time, if, you know, I'm not saying that that 2018 deal was the be all or end all, but you talk about everybody that's that's kind of in that pipeline right now. And if they at least were playing for their, their, their Cuban National Series team, uh, keeping the fans engaged there, the development falls a little bit more on that. You have an infusion of cash. You know, is that a, is that a better system overall? I'll argue yes, but I recognize that my perspective is very different, that I like to see that balance between the majors and, and, and a vibrant Cuban system. So 
you know, they haven't reached out to me to be involved in any of the discussions. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's mostly conjecture on my part, but, um, you know, I, I look for small victories kind of in this thing. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not going to hold my breath that eventually, you know, uh, we're going to reach either political or baseball detent um, overnight or, you know, maybe even maybe even in my lifetime. Well, so, I mean, I, I feel like the system, though, is the biggest issue because, you know, these teams are these teams have a finite resource. And even, you know, the small market clubs get six and a half million dollars to spend in a signing period. And they're agreeing with 14 year old Dominicans like years in advance. And like then these cute, then the Cuban players are, are here. Right. And it's like, okay, now you can sign, but nobody has any money ever. So it's like Cesar Prieto, obviously like, you know, David Hastings has him too. You know, he signs with the Orioles for like $600,000. I mean, that's a, at least $5 million player. I mean, it should be anyway. So you know, there's a couple of guys in limbo, like Luis, uh, Danny Morales is the next pitcher. He, he seems to be going to Oakland next year for a bonus over $3 million. My question to you is, like, some of these holdover guys, like, there's obviously your Christian Vaqueros of the world who, you know, are going to go the Dominican route and they're going to get, you know, as much money as possible as 16-year-olds. Who are some guys we should be keeping our eye on that are kind of in limbo right now, similar to the... Cesar Prieto's of the world that that could sign, I guess, over the next eighteen months with clubs, if there's anybody. Yeah, two two names that stand out to me, and one guy that I'm surprised uh, hasn't signed as of yet, uh, for the sake that his timing, uh, I guess, or or, or to to kind of uh, tie into what you're saying there, and and that the timings for a lot of these players was just terrible. Um, you know, based on when either they could get out, when they could declare, what agreements other teams had. So, uh, but but one player I've done a, a profile on is is uh, Jason Martinez, who um, you know played for the same team as um, as Pedro Leon, and you know kind of profiles as a similar type of player, and and figured he would have signed in this period. He's been available through the whole period, but perhaps the dollars weren't there, so his name might uh, might might come up. The other, the other player that I had um, kind of in that uh, Chappelle mold is uh, Geisel Cepeda, uh, who, you know, the t- they hit one, two in the tournament for, for U23 before, you know, both kind of uh, made, made their way out. So there's another live young toolie, uh, toolsy uh, athlete. So um, those are probably, they were probably the two biggest names from that tournament. Um, again, admitting my my bias or my blind spot is a little bit more on on guys that have come up through that national series program and, and have had some success there so th- there is uh, there are a few of those names out there but at the same time I think that the the next generation the next big signings like uh, like you mentioned a Christian vaquero signs at the top of the market there's a kid that yes he he grew up in Cuba uh, technically developed a little bit there but is more of that new mold of, of kids that got out before ever playing for you know a u18 team playing for a national team playing for a cuban national series team so i think that's where we're where we're going to see that trend go and i hate to to say it as big a fan as i am of the national series itself i don't really think that's going to be a pipeline for for stars to uh to the majors moving forward Phil, this was so much fun. We really appreciate your time. I know we're going to be bugging you again soon, but for now, thanks so much for jumping on the Future Sox podcast. We really appreciate it. 
Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And like I said, anybody wants to check out my writings and also uh, feel free to engage on, on Twitter. I, I know that uh, White Sox Twitter is, uh, is very vibrant, very active. And, and uh, I like to like the, the back and forth with, uh, with a lot of that community. And hopefully I can, can answer any questions that people might have both uh, about baseball on, uh, on Cuba, in Cuba and uh, in Chicago, which is becoming one of Cuba's biggest cities. So yeah, we absolutely take uh, advantage of your content. Go to cubadugout.com. That's the website for Phil Selig. But also follow him on Twitter. Give him a shout out if you're listening to this episode of the podcast. Give him a hey, how are you? At Cuba Dugout. Phil Selig, once again, joining us here on the Future Sox podcast this week. We are weekly now here on the Future Sox podcast. Every Tuesday, you can listen to our content wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you subscribe and download the episode. It really does help us out as uh, we look to continue to grow. So for this week's episode, James Fox, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks so much for doing what you do. And Phil Selig, my name is Mike Rankin. We'll talk to you all next time.